the Pentagon, where's the plane? Where's the 757? Um, and, you know, there it is, in, right in your own uh, view. And that picture of uh, the impact happening, it, somebody went to court to get that, to, to get that out. Uh, anyway, that, that's, where the mo- that's the moment where it struck me. Uh, do you trust your own perceptions, or um, do you suspend your own perceptions and say some higher authorities are... You know they wouldn't wouldn't allow such a thing to to uh, to, to happen. Um, so um, so it it just goes on and on and on. Um, so so little time and so much information to cover. Um, Alex Jones um, strikes me as the kind of radical wing. He I would fairly safely say he, he's not a credible source. It's very um, very extremist and he's all full of uh, the skull and bone society. A very uh, but let's, let's just take a quick look at uh, his approach. Alex Jones. Can we up the sound a little? radio and television host based in Austin, Texas. And for many years I've been exposing the criminal activity of the global elite, also known as the New World Order. And this collection of power-mad megalomaniacs has been using a successive stream of terrorist events to usher in their corrupt world government. A world government where populations, their own documents show, will be herded into compact cities, will be issued national ID cards, and yes, even implantable microchips. But in this film, we're first going to look at some historical examples of tyrants and governments, oligarchies alike, using crises, in many cases, terrorist events that they themselves perpetrate against their population, against their own bureaucracy, 
create a crisis to get the people to exchange liberty for so-called security. You'll often see reference to uh, in these films to Operation Northwoods after the Bay of Pigs, which was botched, the invasion of Cuba uh, during the presidency of John F. Kennedy. There was a secret plan to um, blow up uh, military installations, ships, make it look like the Cubans had done it, and uh, uh, and use that as a pretext. Anyway, Jones is way out there. Jones is, uh, uh, you know, I would say extreme in his uh, distrust. Uh, uh, you know, to him, uh, the United Nations would be a dirty word. It, it, it's all some kind of conspiracy. Uh, so there's not. It's not as if there's one uh, common denominator here. There's a there's a whole school of. Uh, different uh, approaches um, and uh, many different uh, um, you know theories about what's behind it uh, loose change is uh, was uh, the top uh, item on uh, Google videos for a time let's uh, give it a short uh, short view Destruction, 
The planes flew a total of 16 hours and 22 minutes, including 10 takeoffs, 69 approaches, and 13 landings. August 1997. The cover of FEMA's emergency response to terrorism depicts the World Trade Center in crosshairs. February 28, 1998. The Global Hawk, racing on unmanned aircraft vehicles, completes its first flight over Edwards Air Force Base in California at an altitude of 32,000 feet, creating an altitude for a commercial jetliner. 1999. NORAD begins conducting exercises in which hijacked airliners are flown into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. June 2000. The Department of Justice releases a terrorism manual with the World Trade Center in crosshairs. September 2000. The project for a new American century, a neoconservative think tank whose members include Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Jeff Bush, and Paul Wolfowitz, releases their report entitled Rebuilding America's Defenses. In it, they declare that the process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like the new Pearl Harbor. October 24, 2000. The Pentagon conducts the first of two training exercises called NASCAL, which simulate a Boeing 757 crashing into the building. Charles Burlingame, an ex-Navy F-4 pilot who worked in the Pentagon, participates in this exercise before retiring to take a job at American Airlines, where, less than a year later, his Boeing 757 allegedly crashes into the building. April 2001. NORAD plans an exercise in which a plane is flown into the Pentagon, but is rejected at too unrealistic. June 2001. The Department of Defense initiates new instructions for military intervention in the case of a hijacking. It states that for all non-immediate responses, the Department of Defense must get permission directly from the Secretary of Defense. Attorney General John Ashcroft begins flying on charter jets for the remainder of his term due to a threat assessment by the FBI. July 4, 2001. Osama bin Laden, wanted by the United States since 1998, received medical attention at the American Hospital in Dubai, where he was visited by a local chief of the CIA. July 24, 2001, Larry A. Silverstein, who already owned World Trade Center 7, signed a $3.2 billion, 99-year lease on the entire World Trade Center complex six weeks before 9-11. Included in the lease is a $3.5 billion insurance policy specifically covering acts of terrorism. September 6, 2001, 2,150 put options are placed on United Airlines stock. A put option is a bet that a stock will fall. That day, put options were more than four times its daily average. Bombs missing dogs are pulled from the World Trade Center and security guards and two weeks of 12-hour shifts. September 7, 2001. 27,294 put options are placed on Boeing stock, more than five times the daily average. September 10, 2001. 4,516 put options are placed on American Airlines, almost 11 times its daily average. Newsweek reports that a number of top Pentagon brass canceled their flight plans for the next morning. San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown received a phone call warning him not to fly the next morning. Pacifica Radio later revealed that this phone call came directly from National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. And in Pakistan, at a military hospital, all of the urologists are replaced by a special team in order to host their guest of honor, Osama bin Laden, 
who is carefully stored inside, to be watched carefully and looked after. September 11, 2001. The National Reconnaissance Office in Chantilly, Virginia, is preparing for an exercise in which a small corporate jet crashes into their building. NORAD is in the middle of a number of military exercises. The first, Vigilant Guardian, is described as an exercise that would pose an imaginary crisis to North American air defense outposts nationwide. The second, Northern Vigilant moves fighter jets to Canada and Alaska to fight off an imaginary Russian fleet. Three F-16s from Washington, D.C.'s National Guard at Andrews Air Force Base, 15 miles from the Pentagon, are flown 180 nautical miles away for a training mission in North Carolina. This left 14 fighter jets to protect the entire United States.
Titanium has a melting point of 1,688 degrees Celsius. Jet fuel, also known as kerosene, is a hydrocarbon, which can retain a constant temperature of 1,120 degrees Celsius after 40 minutes, but only if the fuel is maintained. The fuel would have burned off immediately upon impact. Therefore, it is scientifically impossible that 12 tons of steel and titanium was vaporized by kerosene. Likewise, the two engines should have been found relatively intact in the Pentagon. Instead, there was a single turbojet engine approximately three feet in diameter found inside the building. After this photo was published by American Free Press, readers wrote in to suggest that the turbine was a piece from the auxiliary power unit, APU, mounted in the tail section of the 757. Chris Baldwin contacted Honeywell in Phoenix, Arizona, the manufacturer of the 757 APU, an expert speaking on the condition of anonymity, told him that there's no way that that's an APU wheel. Baldwin then contacted Pratt & Whitney and Rolls-Royce, the two companies that manufacture 757 engines. Pratt & Whitney pointed Baldwin towards Rolls-Royce, and John W. Brown, a spokesman for Rolls-Royce, told Baldwin that it is not a part from any Rolls-Royce engine that I'm familiar with. In an article written by Carl Schwartz, President and Chief Executive Officer of Patmos Nanotechnology, LLC, and INET Security Systems, he believes that the piece is a JT-8D turbojet engine from a U.S. Air Force A3 Skywarrior. The piece in the FEMA photo is a front shaft bearing housing. Jet engines have a center shaft, which must be balanced, as well as air seals on the front and back. The photo shows the front seal and a rotor hub missing its fan blade. These blades are easily removed in a collision such as the one found at the Pentagon. The United States Air Force has only a few A3s left in operation, and they are stored in Van Nuys, California, at Hughes Aircraft, which is now better known as Raytheon. So if this piece didn't come from a 757, then where? And where are the engines from Flight 77? The second identifiable piece of debris was allegedly a piece of the fuselage. Skeptics have claimed that this is proof that Flight 77 is the Pentagon. But this piece could have come from any American Airlines plane. And why is it not singed or scratched after a 530 mile per hour impact and a subsequent fireball? The third piece of debris was the diffuser case. Let's look a little closer at the diffuser case of the 757. Do you see the triangular bevels around the opening? Those are nowhere to be found on the case found at the Pentagon. I'll just do a survey. We'll go forward a little bit to get the general. A massive smoldering fireball. No silvery flash. No shockwave. And at the Pentagon, a tiny, bright, silvery flash, which shakes nearby buildings. Whatever it was, it might have been related to the two planes that were in the air after the crash. The first one was uniformly identified as a C-130.
that this jet was there for any nefarious purposes or the Secret Service is very concerned, pointing up at the jet in the sky. It is out of sight now, best we can tell. At 9.25, Jane Garvey, the head of the FAA, initiated a national ground stop, which prevents further takeoffs and requires all planes in the air to land. The order, which hasn't been implemented since 1903, applied to almost every single kind of plane, civilian, military, or law enforcement. Certain military flights were allowed to fly during this time, but the FAA isn't talking. Why were these two planes allowed in the air when everyone else had to land? And finally, why do people keep reporting a second explosion at the Pentagon? Well, I can't tell you about that, but I was just here in front of the Capitol, which, by the way, has been evacuated, and back toward the Supreme Court area, we just heard a low, muffled thud. It sounded like a small explosion. Uh, there have been unconfirmed reports of second explosions here at the Pentagon. We have not confirmed that, but again, the, uh, the counterintelligence sources... Where did this fireball come from? Surveillance cameras from a gas station, Sheridan Hotel, and the Virginia Department of Transportation captured the entire thing. However, the FBI was there within minutes to confiscate the tapes, including a warning to the employees not to discuss what they had seen. If the government wished to prove once and for all that Flight 77 hit the Pentagon, all they would have to do is release one of those tapes. Instead, they released five frames from a camera across the heliport, even though none of them show a 757. And finally, flighty satellite photos taken four days before 9-11 show a white marking on the front lawn, marking almost the exact trajectory of whatever hit the Pentagon four days later. And is it merely a coincidence that the Pentagon was hit in the only session that was renovated to withstand that very same kind of attack, and that Donald Rumsfeld was safe in his office on the opposite end of the building? If the government has nothing to hide, why are they so afraid to answer a few questions or release a few videos?
The first two were due to Twin Towers. On July 28, 1945, a B-52 bomber lost in the fog crashed into the 79th floor of the Empire State Building. Fourteen people dead, one million dollars in damage, but the building stands intact to this day. On February 14, 1975, a three-alarm fire broke out between the 9th and 14th floors of the North Tower. According to the New York Times, to intent scrutiny of the towers and eventually to a decision to install sprinklers. On May 4, 1988, a 62-story factory grid walked into a firm for three hours and spread over four floors. It did not collapse. On February 23, 1991, a 38-story skyscraper in Philadelphia, built in 
9.2 seconds. The Twin Towers came down in nearly free fall speed. 200,000 tons of steel shattered into sections no longer than a couple feet long. 425,000 cubic yards of concrete is pulverized into dust. Thousands of lives are extinguished instantly. So what brought down the World Trade Center? Let's ask the experts. Dan Romero, Vice President for Research at New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. My opinion is, based on the videotape, after the airplanes hit the World Trade Center, there were some explosive devices inside that caused the towers to collapse. The collapses were too methodical to be a chance result of airplanes colliding with the structures. Ten days later, certainly the fire is what caused the building to fail. Why would Romero change his mind so suddenly? Jaime Brown, civil engineering professor and the World Trade Center's construction manager. It was over-designed to withstand almost anything, including hurricanes, high winds, bombings, and an airplane hitting it. Although the buildings were designed to withstand a 150-year storm and the impact of a Boeing 707, jet fuel burning at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit weakened the steel. Kevin Ryan, Underwriters Laboratories, a company that certified the steel that was used in the World Trade Center in a letter to Frank Gale of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. We know that the steel components were certified to AFTM E119. The time temperature curves for this standard required the samples to be exposed to temperatures around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for several hours, and as we all agree, the steel met those specifications. Additionally, I think we can all agree that even unfireproof steel will not melt until reaching red-hot temperatures of nearly 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Why Dr. Brown would imply that 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit would melt the high-grade steel used in those buildings makes no sense at all. This story just does not add up. If steel from those buildings I'm sure we can all agree that this was certainly not due to jet fuel fires of any kind, let alone the briefly burning fires in those towers. Ryan's statements directly contradict statements from so-called experts, which claim that 2,000 degree heat inside the World Trade Center caused the towers to collapse. Days after writing this letter, Kevin Ryan was fired from his position. Not even the experts agree with each other. So what else could have caused the Twin Towers and Building 7 to collapse? 10 o'clock Eastern Time this morning, just collapsing on itself. The second building that was hit by the plane has just completely collapsed. We have no idea what caused it. Almost looks like one of those planned implosions. As if the demolition team set off, when you see the old demolition to the old building, it's holding out on itself and it is not there anymore. If you wish to bring that, anybody who's ever watch the building being demolished on purpose knows that if you're going to do this, you have to get at the, at the under infrastructure of a building and bring it down. Uh, we heard another explosion, and I'm assuming that's the one that came from the, the lower level, since there were two, and I thought... So there were like 18 minutes apart. Well, this is, you know, the first, the first explosion, and there was a second explosion in the same building. There were two explosions. Okay. Federal agencies that were down there do believe that there was some sort of explosive device Somewhere else besides the plane case. And you see that box is close to the scene of that attack. Uh, just moments ago, uh, I spoke to the chief of safety for the New York City Fire Department. Um, chief Albert Turi, he received word of the possibility of a secondary device, that is another bomb going off. 
Uh, he tried to get his men out as quickly as he could, but he said that there was another explosion which took place. And then an hour after the first hit here, the first crash that took place, he said, uh, there was another explosion that took place uh, in one of the towers here. He thinks that there were actually devices that were planted in the building. The second device, he thinks, he speculates, was probably planted in the building. There were two or three similar huge explosions, and the building uh, literally shook. You literally shook at the face of this building. First one and then the other, some say after secondary explosion.
Palmer had reached the fire on the 78th floor of the South Tower and devised a plan to put it out.
documentary, World Trade Center, the first 24 hours, and caught both collapses on tape. Watch carefully. The tripod shakes 12 seconds before the North Tower begins collapsing. And something is knocked off the right-hand side of the building. Here's uh, David Ray Griffin, uh, whose book I just showed you. He, he's been uh, on the lecture tour. Um, this is the Canadian uh, Barry Zwicker. And uh, let's do a survey of his
before we commit our children's blood and billions of dollars to that war. We better be sure the threat is real, that a clear and present danger exists, because war itself is fear. U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt fought fear. Today's leaders traffic in it, chiefly the fear of terrorism. That's it. Not global warming, not the end of oil, not domestic and worldwide injustice, not rampant militarism, not war itself, or even war without end, just terrorism. The words are hypnotically repeated. Terrorism, terrorist, terrorist threat, and of course, believed to be linked to Al-Qaeda. These words appear in millions of newspaper and magazine headlines and are embedded by the billions in stories. But it's the so-called war on terrorism that's in our faces practically 24-7 as the inescapable focus of our existence and the justification for great sacrifice. One day, our grandchildren will look back on this time and ask, how was the war on terror won? And we will tell them about the brave men and women who gave their lives some would have it that our support for this new quasi-religion, the so-called war on terrorism, is a measure of our commitment to country and civilization. This program explores interwoven fictions that make up the fabric of the so-called war on terrorism. It explores the promiscuous issuing of terror alerts. It explores the biggest secret and dirtiest deception of all. Study terrorist events carried out not by foreign, but by our government to trick the public into supporting war and police state agendas. We explore in particular the radioactive core of today's terrorist hysteria, namely the official story of 9-11, the overarching fiction and crime and cover-up of our time. Before you see this program, or after you do, there may well be another state-sponsored dirty deception. If there is, and if the information in this program helps you to see it for what it is, it will have been worthwhile. The sacred text at the heart of the so-called war on terrorism is the official narrative of what happened on September 11, 2001, namely that the whole of U.S. intelligence, civil aviation, military, and political apparatus is caught completely off guard by one evil man and his small network of co-conspirators. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. That provides ready-made, easy-to-hate villains and their motives. They hate our freedoms, George Bush repeats over and over. But the official story just doesn't make sense, as we will show. It is exploited and planned by its creators, the government. But final responsibility for the unbelievable story, living on to the extent it does in the public mind, lies with the vast majority of my colleagues in the mainstream media. If they ever start to do their job properly and examine it skeptically, the official story will crumble into dust finer than that of the Twin Towers. Now, absolutely no one disagrees that 9-11 was a conspiracy. Conspiracy is at the heart of the official story, after all. A conspiracy perpetrated, allegedly, by Osama bin Laden. 
But what if the conspiracy were hatched not in a cave in Afghanistan, but in Washington, D.C., at the highest levels of the U.S. government? What if the public found out the official story is a big lie? How might that change plans for endless war? There are other paths to true security and lasting peace. The first step on those paths is to expose the official 9-11 story for what it is, a contrived fiction, and then to demand a true accounting of what happened on 9-11 and who was behind the events of that day. Terrorism has been with us for a long time. It tends to be the last resort of the powerless, suffering under acute injustice. And as such, one person terrorist is seen by another as a freedom fighter. This is what Noam Chomsky calls retail terrorism. That's carried out by angry or paid individuals. But then there's wholesale terrorism. That's carried out by states. Robert Jensen writes in the Houston Chronicle, For more than five decades, throughout the Third World, the United States has deliberately targeted civilians or engaged in violence so indiscriminate that there is no other way to understand it except as terrorism. And it has supported similar acts of terrorism by client states. He could have reached that further. In his new book, The American Empire and the Fourth World, Anthony J. Hall, according to one reviewer, connects the unspeakable crimes visited upon the indigenous people since the conflict
single communist was the Patsy. The big lie of who torched the Reichstag is used by Hitler to sow fear. He bullies the German president to sign a decree suspending seven main articles of the German constitution. The claim is that the fatherland, state homeland, is under threat. Ensuing arrests and murders of communists and socialists terrorize anti-Hitler dissent. In the ensuing election, Hitler does not get the majority he needs to rule. But soon after, he essentially seizes power. He then is free to launch preemptive strikes against other countries and wage a world war sold as patriotic. To make them. This man is like against kids in incubators, and they were thrown out of the incubators so that Kuwait could be systematically dismantled. There were a lot of people who participated in the conspiracy. Yes, an out-and-out -out conspiracy. A fake organization, false documents, fraud, and disinformation. So, if a new man named Bush is in the White House and helps engineer a brazen deception in order to achieve global geopolitical goals as well as domestic and personal ones, it wouldn't be a first, would it? After a short break, a detailed look at the events of September 11, 2001. Takes command with the means to detect, monitor, identify, intercept, report, and if necessary, destroy any airborne object that may pose a threat to North America in the fulfillment of the tactical threat warning attack assessment and to provide such information to collateral missions of MORAD. Michael Rupert, a former Los Angeles Police Department detective, was the first major 9-11 skeptic and researcher in the world and remains one of the foremost. He was one of 40 experts on 9-11 who testified at the six-day International Citizens' Inquiry into 9-11 held in Toronto in May of 2004. I helped organize that event. At the inquiry, Michael Rupert addresses the absence of jet interceptors, but the unlikelihood of a simple stand-down order and asks, what if they were so confused and had been so deliberately confused that they couldn't respond? Michael Rupert is standing by at his office in Sherman Oaks, California. Michael, thanks for this. What is the reason for the failure of U.S. military jets to show up in a timely fashion on 9-11? Well, the simple fact is, Gary, that they didn't know where to go. The reason that they didn't know where to go was because a number of conflicting and overlapping uh, war game exercises were taking place, one of which uh, Northern Vigilance had pulled uh, a significant number of North American fighter aircraft uh, into Canada uh, and Western Alaska and, and Northern Alaska in a mock Cold War hijack exercise. There was another drill, Vigilant Guardian, which was a, uh, a hijack exercise, a command post exercise, but it involved the insertion of false radar blips under radar screens in the Northeast Air Defense Sector. In addition, we have a confirmation, thanks to General Richard Myers, who was acting chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who told Richard Clark, as reported in Clark's book, that there was another exercise, Vigilant Warrior, which was, in fact, according to a NORAD source, a live-fly hijack drill being conducted at the same time. With only eight available fighter aircraft, and they have to be dispatched in pairs, they were dealing with as many as 22 possible hijacks on the day of 9-11, and they couldn't separate the war game exercises from the actual hijacks. But this was done deliberately, though. 
Apparently so, and I will be saying that uh, in my forthcoming book, uh, Crossing the Rubicon, 9-11 and the Decline of American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil. Uh, we have done an extensive investigation on that to show that uh, these uh, war game exercises were apparently very well planned by someone who I... Welcome back to The Great Conspiracy, the 9-11 news special you never saw. What did George Bush know about the events of 9-11, and when did he know them? I'm not asking what George Bush, or Bill Clinton for that matter, knows or should have known in the weeks or years before, based on this or that so-called intelligence report that he sees or should have seen about vague or not so vague alleged terrorist threats. No, my questions are much more restricted. I'm asking what specific event information George W. Bush has about the first plane hitting the World Trade Center before it strikes. How does he get that information, and from whom? Why does he act as if he has far less information than the record shows he must have had? Initial news reports show the President informed of the gravity of the situation that morning. That famous whisper in the ear must be put into context. It takes place at 9.05. That's one hour and five minutes after the first hijacking. 45 minutes after the FAA is aware of multiple errant airliners. 20 minutes after the first aircraft smashes into the Trade Center. 18 minutes after CNN breaks into regular programming. In other words, a torrent of hot water churns under the bridge before whisper time. Researchers Jared Israel and Ilarian Baikov of EmperorsClothes.com write shortly after 9-11. The President of the United States travels with an entire staff, including the Secret Service, which is responsible for his safety. The members of this support team have the best communications equipment in the world. They maintain contact with, or can easily reach, Bush's cabinet, the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, the FAA. Information concerning these alarming events must be shared with the President by his staff, otherwise they would be derelict in their duties. Not surprising then, this report by ABC's John Cochran, traveling with the President, here speaking to Peter Jennings, not long after the President left his hotel. Peter, as you know, the President's down in Florida talking about education. He got out of his hotel suite this morning, was about to leave, Reporters saw the White House Chief of Staff, Andy Tarek, whisper into his ear. The reporter said to the President, Do you know what's going on in New York? He said he did, and he said he will have something about it later. His first event is in about half an hour at an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida. Something is very odd about the President's behavior. The President is aware, by his own words, that something serious is happening in New York. He additionally has to be aware of a great deal more about the situation. You have John Ashcroft later in the day at a press conference. Immediately after the first report of a plane crashing into the World Trade Towers, numerous federal agencies coordinating with the White House mobilized their resources. You have Vice President Dick Cheney, September 16th on NBC's Meet the Press. He tells host Jim Russert, 
The Secret Service has an arrangement with the FAA. They had open lines after the World Trade Center was then besought itself. You have Laura Brown of the FAA. She attends hearings of the 9-11 Commission that bear on the aviation aspect of the day. And Farron, by previous non-forthcoming testimony about the FAA's role, she sends an email in May of 2003 to members of the media whose business cards she had collected. Within minutes after the first aircraft hit the World Trade Center, she states in her email, the FAA immediately established several phone bridges that included FAA field facilities, the FAA command center, FAA headquarters, DOD, the Secret Service, and other government agencies. The U.S. Air Force liaison to the FAA immediately joined the FAA headquarters phone bridge and established contact with NORAD on a separate line. The FAA shared real-time information on the phone bridges about the unfolding event, including information about loss of communication with aircraft, loss of transponder signals, unauthorized changes in course, and other actions being taken by all the flights of interest, including Flight 77. So, in light of all this, here's the odd thing about George Bush's behavior. He and his staff could cancel or postpone an easily postponable photo op, but they don't. Why? On 9-11, Bush acts, and I emphasize acts, as if he doesn't know, as if he's not in touch. He proceeds with, or feigns, normality. Now to something else that's puzzling. At a town hall session in Orlando, Florida, on December the 4th, 2001, here's the president's own account of the early morning of 9-11. How did you feel when you heard about the terrorist attack? Well, thank you, George. George, you're not going to believe where I stayed I was in when I heard about the terrorist attack. I was in Florida. And uh, my chief of staff, Andy Carter, actually I was in a classroom talking about a reading program that works. And, uh, it, uh, I was sitting outside uh, the, the classroom waiting to go in, and I saw an airplane hit the tower. Uh, the, TV, you know, the TV was obviously on. The president tells us he sees, on an ordinary TV set outside a school classroom, the first plane hit the World Trade Center. He gives the oddly reinforcing detail that, quote, the TV was obviously on, unquote. He continues. I used to fly myself, and I said, this one is a terrible pilot. And uh, it must have been a horrible accident. But I was with off there, I didn't have much time to think about it. He didn't have time to think about it. As if his being told, time to meet kids, Mr. President, stopped all his thought processes. Concerning a remarkable image of what he's told us he's just seen on an ordinary TV, on top of all his knowledge, Someone head an investigation? The commission has been charged with a crucial task. Call it foot dragging. And then, who does Bush appoint? He appoints Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger sets a new standard for cynicism, or for being out of touch, or both. A New York Times editorial suggests the choice was to contain an investigation the White House long opposed. But Kissinger, at least, is an expert on the date September 11th. 
It was on that day in 1973 that the CIA-assisted overthrow of the democratically elected government of Chile takes place, masterminded by Kissinger or Richard Nixon. President Salvador Allende is murdered. In his 2001 book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger, Christopher Hitchens notes Kissinger as a crucial figure at all stages of this crime and cover-up. Now, this is in reference to a bloody and unnecessary Kissinger-driven episode in Indochina, which cost the lives of 64 U.S. servicemen. But it also sums up Kissinger's role in the bloody Chilean operation. The cover-up is as important as the crime. The White House tries to install Kissinger, an expert at cover-up, to head the 9-11 investigation. After a universal backlash, Kissinger backs off. Bush then names, it's 431 days now, Thomas Kane and Lee Hamilton as co-chairman. Kane's Azerbaijan oil connections and other conflicts of interest should make him ineligible from the outset. He earlier co-chairs the Homeland Security Project. Uh, American Paul Thompson has created the definitive timeline of events related to 9-11. It's drawn exclusively. Anyway, there it is. It's uh, all accessible anytime. It's public in the public domain. And uh, it goes on and on and on. This is just a small um, small sampling of, of 100 different uh, documentaries available on the World Wide Web. And it's quite a striking display uh, that the net is clearly supporting a community of skeptics uh, and uh, it speaks to uh, I guess I think the vitality of the World Wide Web uh, uh, obviously uh, how do we sort this out how do we begin to sort this out I, I'm not going to stand here and say I know what happened I can explain it I, I cannot explain what happened. Uh, however, I have become very skeptical of the uh, official version of events. I couldn't say, um, you know, what what truly happened. Uh, what was the what was the pattern? That loose change. Um, uh, you know, we we saw snippets of it. Uh, to me, that's a very serious effort to provide facts, to provide uh, commentary, to provide context, to provide background. Um, to to use you know primary sources the primary sources of what was being said at the time it it, it happened um, and uh, of course you know we 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 have to think how does this all look in different places in the world and uh, what kind what kind of actions uh, unfolded since 9/11 on the basis of the official version that we've been given. And uh, what are our responsibilities in an institution like this, whose entire purpose, whose entire raison d'etre is to uh, determine truth from falsehood and to identify good evidence and to uh, do the best to synthesize the best available evidence? Sandra, you need to... Uh, 
power habitat we change it but the texture part and if it sends the light away <laughs> anybody want to comment Who benefits? Who, who benefits? Who we'll have the power? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you know it's not uh, it's not uh, a fact that should go um, unnoticed. But the biggest industry in the United States is the military-industrial complex. Uh, Eisenhower coined that phrase uh, when he was leaving office. It was his retirement speech, and he said, beware of the power of a technocracy that is growing in the United States. He referred to it as the military-industrial complex. Now, this is coming from uh, the head soldier in the United States during World War II. This is a military man. Uh, Eisenhower would be in a position to, if he's alarmist in that direction, he would be in a position to know, having served as head of the U.S. Armed Forces in, in Europe, um, as head of the operations in D-Day, becoming President of the United States for two terms, that there is a, a whole, uh, since 1941, when the United States entered the uh, World War II after Pearl Harbor, uh, the United States has been increasingly attached to the military-industrial complex, to that, to the production of arms, to the production of, uh, of chemical uh, warfare, biological warfare, nuclear warfare, submarines, every kind of aeronautical. Uh, and the, the, the spin-offs have been huge, huge spin-offs into the, into the economy, you know, into the consumer marketplace. Computers are definitely part of uh, the spin-off out of the military-industrial complex. What happens at the end of the Cold War when this whole industrial base, this whole uh, juggernaut of an economy, suddenly there is no um, identifiable enemy and the United States has bases all over the world? And how do you justify this? For what reason do you maintain this? I can't help but think on some level uh, to maintain the momentum of that economy, there has to be a credible enemy. Sandra, you've got to push the button this time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, now you maybe forget what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, this thing about terrorism. I have a professor in Native Studies, Kimberly Roplo, and after 9-11, her Native Studies classes were um, like monitored by like FBI and CIA and stuff. So this, um, your thing about who the terrorist really is is, um, I don't know. I just want to. There, there is no doubt that there is a, a situation where, with technological advancement, you can you can get very powerful weapons in very small formats, increasingly cheap biological weapons. I mean, th th there is no doubt that uh, this is a huge issue for humanity, that zealots can use advanced technology in weapon craft to, um, 
to do incredible damage, and you can't deny that that is uh, got to be addressed. But uh, Vickers' um, approach, where he says, you know, what what are the true threats we face as humanity? What are the environmental threats? What are the threats of our uh, attitudes towards one another? Um, the threats of our our ruthlessness towards one another, which you know, and, and how are, are we going to govern this? How are we going to govern or deal with um, um, the contamination of the oceans, the changing of the global climate? Um, you know, these, these are true um, challenges to our global security. The United States, since the beginning of the Cold War, uh, has been largely uh, dominated by what they call a national security state. The national security state is, a, is almost as a, a law above the law, and it intervenes not, not in the United States, but around the world. Um, so um, uh, the national security state of the United States, what about the, the, the collective security of all humankind? The national security of the United States, what about global security? the global security of all human beings, the global security of people in Africa who are you know, suffering incredible plague and pestilence right now. Uh, there's many ways to think of our security, to think of our academic security. When you say that, Sandra, you know somebody in this university who, who feels that they have been invaded by some kind of uh, agents of the police. What... When you announce that in your in, in an environment like this, what does this do to our sense of security that this is a, a place of genuine free inquiry where we can speak openly and give articulation to you know, maybe suspicions we have, maybe thoughts that we haven't fully formulated, but the need to feel safe, to, to, to feel um, respected in, in our academic freedom. I mean, there's academic security, environmental security. So many ways to think about our security. So uh, I'll uh, leave it at that. And it was a, kind of an invigorating uh, challenge there. I'll certainly take that to uh, to heart. And I I want to repeat that uh, this is a domain of academic freedom. You are encouraged to think critically and uh, and articulate your critical thoughts, even if it if it uh, and especially, really, if it involves a disagreement with me or a, a, a different point of view. I am not here to indoctrinate. And I, I may have arrived at certain conclusions, but you are under no pressure to assimilate my conclusions. I, I'm trying to uh, develop a methodology here, an approach to knowledge. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm feeling that this has been a good place to start from the perspective of different peoples in the world, how does truth appear? How do we identify truth? What is the relationship between truth and culture? What is the relationship between truth and religion? What is the relationship between truth and money? Because aren't, aren't you, Sandra, sort of suggesting that if you're in a comfortable position in this society, why rock the boat? Why take a chance? Why expose yourself? To, to recriminations or, or allegations that you're a radical, you're an extremist, you're unstable, you're, 
you're um, a loose cannon. Um, and yet, how do we maintain our responsibility to actually, I mean, I, that one shot of this, where's the plane going into the Pentagon? There it is, right in front of me, five frames, boom, boom, boom. I don't see the plane. I just can't see the plane. I don't see the plane. Those are my senses. Those are, you know, what, what do we have to identify truth other than our sight, our, our, our smell, our ears, you know? I, I wanted to get at, you know, in a sense, we are the primary source. Our own experience is the pr primary of primary sources. And to be, to be clear about and self-conscious about where we're coming from, what sort of orientations we bring to our perceptions and to our evaluations as what is true and what is not true, uh, you know, to, to present a little display of my own history, I, I, I'm trying to encourage you to to look at your own history as a primary source that can inform you and to embrace that and respect that and try to understand it and try to be self-conscious of it. So we'll see you uh, next week when we will have a very interesting... I have a question, uh, yeah. Dr. Hall. I was wondering if just in terms of relativity, uh, if next class we could watch Penn and Teller's Call and Bullshit. Uh, not, not next class, because if all goes well, we'll have a, an interesting event. That, uh, but I would encourage you, if you would like to take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes to present something. Oh, I really don't have much. I really don't have much. Right here or right now? I just wanted to see what uh, Penn and Teller's view on relativism was on this. Since We've had experiences with what uh, other people have as a view to a view of the relative truth. Right now, or you, you I, say, I mean, say I'm a I'm it right now. I really don't. I don't know what you're talking about, Penn and Teller. Well, it's up on your screen. Conspiracy um, <coughs> theories. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah. saying anything about what what we've just watched. I'm just saying that's one that's one point on a relative scale. Sure. Okay. Uh, I'm sure they have none.
hiding the station of death. And so in the trade tower, they planted explosives on every floor. You actually see these pieces come up and down, up and over. See these pieces? That's coming up and over. That's not a collapse. It was an explosion. Okay. Conspiracy theorists, like all sorts of theorists, take disparate facts and put them together. And what makes the conspiracy theorists a little bit different is they put the facts together in alternative ways that are tinged with a kind of paranoia. Can we seem respectful? I assume all of Thinking about size shows its fancy car and jumpsuit. And well, sometimes you should judge a book by itself. Good morning. Not for duty, sir. This is Glenn Corbett. He's an assistant fire chief and an assistant professor of fire science. Plus, he's a technical editor of fire engineering magazine. He knows what brought down the towers, and it wasn't explosive. There's no evidence or any type of explosive devices or bombs. What really, really brought the building down was the fire. When you enter 10,000 gallons worth of gas fuel into an office building, and you have steel truck construction like the trade centers did, they wore and then congratulate with more than the buildings to sustain. When you look at what the plane brings in, there are significant amount of muscle material, plastics, and of course all the luggage, uh, the seats, all those kind of things. But also within the normal office building, computers, desks, chairs, a lot of those are either wood and a lot of it's actually hydrocarbon based plastic, which has very high rates of heat release, which you know in this case is burned for a sustained period of time over a very large area. Everything is vaporized, everything. And unfortunately, so were 2,800 people. And that's something we should never forget. Such conspiracy nuts, death, and suffering. They're just heart-pounding entertainment. They wax tragedy. And so it looks like what hit the Pentagon is some sort of unmanned drone. Building 7 was a classic implosion where they only took out the center column. What happened is the Arabs were passing by the White House and warning the people of Manhattan. My first reaction to Flight 93 is that the military, after they saw those towers get hit, were thinking, wait a minute, that's not part of the plan. What is that plane going to do? Shoot it! I think proper in your conspiracy theories like that are an insult to the people who lost their lives here. Well, why do these ideas, ideas with no basis in fact, keep popping up? People hate thinking about, in a flash of an eye, terrorist bombers can come in and crash into the World Trade Center. They would rather see that, oh, yes, there was always a system. There was always some overriding explanation that can let us make sense of the world. Wasn't 9-11 enough of a conspiracy to make the parents happy? Religious fanatics, directed by God, conspired to use planes as suicide bombs? They conspired to demolish an American landmark to kill thousands of people and to crush the economy, liberty, and spirit of the greatest nation on Earth? So they did it on a low budget with pure cunning and psychotic determination. Don't the conspiracy nuts realize that sometimes something simple and small and crazy and mean can destroy something big and beautiful?
more balanced than that. Oh, so much more. And it was a good, well-made show that had the coach, the vice chair of the 9-11 commission, who talked about a lot of the um, problems and a lot of the experiences here. He said, hey, at this point, said, until we have a better solution or a better answer, that's the best place someone called the first draft of history. And so right now, it's just how it looks. And he addressed some of the problems. And CBC got experts about the steel and the fire and why it could have collapsed. And they talked about the building in front of the Pentagon. And it was on. Like, I almost said something in the last class. We, we got on to the 9-11 commission. It was on like, two days before that. And it was a really good show. Original CBC program. Now we're not long on the day before 9-11. I just think it's the truth. Uh, it's probably going to be up on Google Video. Like, there's a whole CBC section. And yeah, they, they advertise for like two weeks. I'm surprised nobody saw it. Yeah, it was actually on the the the, the night it was, uh, it was on. Uh, it was the final on September 10th. It was it was opposite uh, it was opposite all that the movies and the yeah. and there was a Canadian one that started a year earlier. Yeah, it was the guy that does the what's the book review show on Fridays on CBC News World. He's, he's been on CBC for a long time. He made the show and they had like really decent people. It was a really well made show about.